In our last lesson before our Thanksgiving Christmas break, we had just begun our look at the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember when we put all four gospel accounts together, which is what we are doing in this study, we discovered that the Lord actually went through a process of how many trials, ladies? How many? Six trials. Six men's trials. Six is the number of men. Three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. Trials. Now, none of the gospel accounts record all of these trials. John alone was the one who gave us the first trial, the first Jewish trial before Annas. Only John, and that was in John 18. Luke is the only one who gives us the third Jewish trial, which will be before Caiaphas and the gathered Sanhedrin council. Matthew and Mark record for us the middle Jewish trial in the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest. And that is going to be our subject for today, the middle Jewish trial. Three Jewish trials. Today we're going to look at the second of those. Now, the first trial, which is the only one we have discussed so far, was a preliminary examination held before who? Who did Jesus stand for in that first preliminary trial? Go all the way back to November. Annas, right, Annas. Who we learned, Annas, was the father-in-law of the official high priest, Caiaphas. Although Annas was an old man, but he was really the one who held the power, the more power of the two. He had been Israel's high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. That was only nine years Um, But according to Old Testament law, according to Mosaic law, the high priest was to retain his office how long? Until he died. He was to have his office until he died. So from the Jewish perspective, Annas was still the authentic high priest of Israel as long as he lived. So the, the Jews acknowledged Caiaphas in a civic way, with civic matters, but Annas took precedence over him when it came to religious matters, and that's why they took Jesus first to Annas. Annas, and we talked about him last time, he was a wicked, greedy, egotistical, selfish, conniving man. And he was looking for evidence to charge against Jesus. He was looking for something in that first trial, something that he could present to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin Council that they could use as a base for their accusation against Jesus so that they could pronounce the already predetermined verdict of death on him. Annas was really looking for something to accuse Jesus of. Pretty pathetic, isn't it? And also, he was stalling for time so that the members of the Sanhedrin Council could be waked up. Now, remember, this is the wee hours of the night. So that they could be waked up and assembled for a quorum meeting with Caiaphas. And also, he was stalling for time so that he could send out his little dupes to find false witnesses against Jesus and uh, bribe them to testify against Jesus Christ. Now, we've already discussed the fact that this first trial of Christ before Annas, we've discussed that, but we didn't get into a lot of technicality regarding just how illegal that whole trial was. And I told you that we would save that for when we came back. That trial before Annas was 
very illegal, as were the other two that followed it, as Jesus stood before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Now, we should realize, of course, that it was God, God himself, who gave the general requirements for justice and impartiality in the Mosaic Law. And when those requirements, you can read about them in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he gave the requirements for justice. And when all of those requirements were obeyed, properly obeyed, they created an excellent, excellent judicial system one upon which, really, the modern Western world has established its own legal system. Our legal system today, now it's been pretty corrupted, but originally it was really, really good, and it was developed upon um, the, the law of Moses and the Jewish system. In Deuteronomy, for example, the nation of Israel was told to assign judges and officers in every town of every Jewish tribe, and they were to judge the people, it says, with just judgment. God specifically instructed them to not distort justice and to not show partiality to one person over another person and to never, ever, ever, ever take bribes or bribe someone in a, in a court system. Everything was to be handled uh, with fairness and with, with total justice. In Deuteronomy 19, divine instruction was given to ensure against the use of false witnesses. In that chapter, the law said that anyone who knowingly gave a false witness was to suffer, listen to this, anyone who gave a false witness was to suffer the same punishment as the accused would suffer if that person was found guilty. It also states that conviction was only to be made on the testimony of at least two consistent, reliable witnesses. And Deuteronomy 17.7 contains a great divine deterrent to being a false witness. Because you know what it says in Deuteronomy 17.7? It says that the accusing witnesses in a capital case were to be the ones who were to initiate the execution. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if a person was sentenced to be stoned to death, the witnesses who brought testimony against him or against her were to be the ones who would do what? Cast the first stones. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. You see, Jesus, when he was challenged with those who brought an adulteress to him back in John 8, he used that very law when he said, you know, he who was, is without sin, you brought her to me, you're accusing her, so go ahead, cast the first stones. He used that very law. And over the years, not only did they have Mosaic law, but also rabbinical laws were added as extra precautions to the Mosaic law in the judicial system. And one such precaution was that a death sentence would not be carried out until the third day after, listen to this, after the sentence was given. So you, if they, the court got together and they accused somebody, okay, you're guilty and you're going to be stoned to death, they had to wait three days before they carried out that sentence. The rabbis also included the requirement that all the members of the court that had determined the death sentence for that person were during those three intervening days to fast. 
So if you were on the, in the court that declared somebody guilty during the three days before that person was sentenced, you were required to fast. And this extra requirement not only caused those ruling justices to be extremely careful about their decisions, but also it prevented them from, uh, it prevented capital capital punishment trials from taking place during feast days. Because you know, during feast days, they weren't allowed to fast. Feast days were times of feasting, right? <laughs> they weren't supposed to fast during feast days, such as, what's one feast day? Passover, okay? So they weren't allowed, no capital offense cases were allowed to take place during feasts. Also, this extra requirement of the delay of three days prevented, um, it, 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 it provided extended time for additional evidence or testimony on behalf of the defendant to be found and brought to the court. So the three days, not only did all the justices fast, but that was three extended days that maybe somebody, they could find somebody else who would come up and testify on the behalf of the defendant. Okay, you get it? So it was, a, it was a good delay. Then um, on the morning of the third day, after the sentence was declared, the council was to meet again, and each of the judges was asked one by one if during those three days of fasting he had changed his mind in his decision. Now, listen to this. A vote of, for condemnation. And first of all, that defendant, I mean, that judge had said he's guilty, and after three days he decided he wasn't guilty he could change his decision. So you could change a decision of condemnation to acquittal, but you could never change a sentence of acquittal to condemnation. Interesting, isn't it? Now, another good rabbinical requirement that was added to the Mosaic Law included the guarantee that an accused criminal would have the right to a public trial where anybody could attend, out in the open. He, he was to have his own defense counsel, and he was allowed to bring forth evidence and witnesses on his or her behalf. That's only fair, isn't it? We follow that same system today. There was also provision to protect a defendant from incriminating himself. It was determined that a defendant's own confession, no matter how convincing it might be, if it was just his own uh, confession, it was not sufficient testimony uh, by itself to convict him. And that's important in the trial of Jesus, as we'll see. And another good rule was that, uh, in it, that the Sanhedrin Council itself could not initiate charges against anyone. The council itself could not initiate the charges. And that is, again, very interesting. Uh, the council could only consider charges brought to it. And, you know, it would sit as, the, as the, the judging council, but it could only consider cases that were brought to it by outside sources, by an outside party. And that was done in order to prevent the council from having too much power. And then consider this Jewish requirement. No criminal could ever be, uh, no criminal trial could ever, ever be held during the night. Hmm, 
when are these trials going on? Middle of the night. And they couldn't even continue into the night. So if they started a trial in the daytime, but it, you know, went on, they'd have to stop it when the sun went down. And the property of an executed criminal could not be confiscated. It was to be given to that uh, victim's family. What is that? Oh, I thought it was like an alarm. That's your phone? <laughs> Ring the bell. <laughs> yeah, everybody turn your phones off. <laughs> oh. So there, the, the uh, property of a criminal could, could not be con- confiscated. And, of course, you all think about what they did with the little bit that Jesus had, right, his, his robe. <laughs> Furthermore, the council was always, always to presume the innocence of the defendant until proven what? Innocent, you know, until proven guilty. Now, in a local town council, I'm not speaking now about the big Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, But in every town, you know, there was a town council that would decide cases. And in a local town council, 11 votes out of 23 were required for an acquittal. In other words, that's less than half to set somebody free. 11 out of 23 could set somebody free. But 13 votes, which is more than half, 13 out of 23, were necessary to convict someone. And this gave the advantage to the defendant, didn't it? And when the vote among the judges took place, it always was done from the youngest members to the oldest members. So when they were taking the vote, they'd start with the youngest, guilty or not guilty, and that one would say, and then they'd go up to the oldest. Why do you think they did that? Why did they start with the youngest and go to the oldest? So that the oldest wouldn't influence, you know, their decisions would influence the younger ones. So they started with the younger ones. It's also very wise. And if a council, now listen to this one, if a council ever voted unanimously for the conviction of a defendant, in other words, everybody on that council said guilty, 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 every single one, do you know what they were to do? They were to set the person If everyone voted guilty, they were to set him free. And the reason for this is that it was then presumed that the necessary element of mercy had been lacking during the trial proceedings. See, the governing principle in capital offenses was that the Sanhedrin was to be committed to saving life, not to destroying life. So after learning all this information about Israel's judicial system as given in both God's law and also by added rabbinical laws, one thing that stands out is that the Jewish system of justice was tremendously merciful, right? And, and fair, really. But on the other hand, one thing that really stands out about the Jewish religious trials of Jesus Christ is that they were anything but anything but merciful and fair. They were illegal in every aspect from both the Mosaic law and the rabbinical law. So both divine and human laws were violated. The co-reigning high priests 
Annas and Caiaphas, along with that ruling body of 70 men that made up the Sanhedrin, they violated every single principle of their own judicial system when it came, came to trying Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going to see that as we go through these trials. The Lord was tried when? Day or night? Tried at night. You know, the, the, the Romans got him by the time the sun came up, but the Jews tried him during the darkness of night. He was tried in secrecy, and he was tried on a feast day. He was being tried without first having been charged with a crime. The members of the Sanhedrin were those who initiated his trials, which was strictly forbidden. He was allowed no defense, no witnesses. And those witnesses who were brought forth against him in this second trial were false witnesses who had very likely been bribed. Jesus was presumed guilty from the very beginning because it had already been predetermined by his judges that he was to die. Remember John 11:53, They had already determined he was to die. His first trial before Annas, as well as his first trial before Caiaphas, which we're going to look at this morning, were efforts to get him to incriminate himself, to testify against himself. Another strictly forbidden courtroom procedure. And what else do we find? Well, we find that he was executed on the very same day that he was sentenced. There was no three-day delay, was there? No fasting on the part of his judges. And even his property was confiscated, Mark 15, 24. About the only thing that was done properly was when Jesus was offered a stupefying drink for his crucifixion. Jewish law stated that the drink was to be mercifully offered in order to dull the senses of a dying criminal. However, guess what? Who was it who offered him that stupefying drink? Was it the Jews? No, it was the Romans. It, even in that, it was not the Jews. It was the Romans who offered it to him. Now, if you remember, Annas began his illegal quest for an accusation against the Lord by asking him to tell him about two things. Anybody remember what those two things were? They both started with D. Right? His disciples and his doctrine. Very good. He asked him about his disciples and his doctrine. That's in John 18, 19, if you want to look at it. And the Lord, remember, gave absolutely no reply whatsoever concerning his disciples. Why? Well, he was keeping them, just as he had told his father, you know, I have kept them. And so he was keeping his disciples right to the very end. He had told his father that in the high priestly prayer of John 17. He was the good shepherd physically protecting his sheep at the very same time that he was preparing to be the lamb who would die to spiritually save his sheep. So he was protecting his disciples. And neither did he really directly answer Annas' question about his doctrine. I'm sure that both Annas and Caiaphas knew exactly what Jesus had been teaching and what he was claiming because they were just too shrewd and too experienced and too cunning not to know their enemy very well. So I'm sure they knew everything he had been out there teaching. But instead of telling Annas about his doctrine, what did the Lord do? Well, he essentially reminded him 
that everything he had ever taught, he had done so openly. You know, I've taught openly in, in insinuating, not like you're doing here, privately, secretly. You know, I was out in the open, in the synagogues and in the temple teaching. So, you know, you could call any one of thousands of people. Remember, Jerusalem's filled with people at this time of Passover. You could just call in thousands of people to come in here and testify as to what I've been saying and what I've been teaching. Again, he's implying, why aren't you getting any witnesses for my defense? You know, I should have some witnesses here. And uh, he was really, you know, he was, he was rebuking Annas for the illegality of what he was doing by trying him in, in secrecy at night in a private home without a public audience. And he was also reminding Annas that he had a right for, to uh, witnesses for his defense. Well, the obvious wrong of everything that Annas was doing was momentarily embarrassing. And so what happened? One of the temple officers kind of tried to save face for the high priest, and he struck the Lord in the face. He slapped him in the face, and he rebuked him with these words. He says, Answereth, answereth the high priest so? And that was the first blow inflicted on the Lord from the hands of sinners. And it didn't come from a Roman Gentile. Again, it came from a Jewish man because the temple guard were Jewish. And we noticed that there was not one hint of a word from Annas that he did or said anything to rebuke that officer for his shocking and illegal treatment of the prisoner. Now remember, Jesus is bound. And they were to presume the innocence of someone until proven guilty. They had no, they had no case against him at all yet. No case. No crime. And he's bound before Annas in, in, in the night, you know, secret, everything illegal. And then he gets slapped in the face, rudely slapped. And the whole thing was just illegal in every sense of the word. But Annas doesn't say anything to this officer. But Jesus has been mistreated. He's been arrested. He's been bound. We talked about how probably in chains, dragged to Annas' house, and now struck in the face, all still without any accusation. But through all of that, didn't we notice the Lord's complete composure? How would we have reacted? Well, we don't want to go there, right? But what did the Lord do? He said, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of it. But if well, why smitest thou me? You know, all he said was, I've spoken out publicly. Why don't you call somebody in to ask them what I said, what I taught? That's all he said. He didn't deserve that slap. Well, what was going on simultaneously with all of this? Everything happening uh, with Jesus and Annas and that temple guard. Simultaneously, we learned about the events concerning Peter's first denial of the Lord. And they were taking place, that denial, that first one was taking place in the outer courtyard of the high priest's palatial home. Now, we don't hear any more about Peter until the Lord's, after the Lord's first trial with Caiaphas. Okay? So since today we're going to be looking at his first trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, we're not going to hear about Peter. We're not going to discuss Peter today. We don't hear about him again until after this trial. So we'll save that for next week's lesson when we look at Lesson 169, 
the alarm cock sound. I love that title. <laughs> the alarm cock. <laughs> so when Annas was finished with Jesus, what, what had taken place? Well, not too much. He was completely unsuccessful. Annas was unsuccessful in finding a charge against Jesus. The last word that we have about Annas is found in John 18:24, which tells us that he sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas. No accusation, nothing but abuse. I thought about Annas, starts with an A. No accusation, accusation starts with an A, nothing but what? Abuse. Abuse starts with an A. And it's not really a surprising scriptural end to this man that the last recorded account of him shows him not having helped the council and not having honored the Christ. He didn't help the council because he didn't come up with an accusation. And he certainly did not honor the Christ. The only thing Annas had been successful in doing was stalling for time. While he had been questioning Jesus, Caiaphas was getting word to the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble in his home. And that tells you right away that this next trial is also illegal because the Sanhedrin was forbidden to try potential death sentences at night, at feast times, and in private residences. You know where they should have had the meeting? Well, they shouldn't have had it during the Passover. They shouldn't have had it at night. And if they did finally have it, it should have been in the Hall of Stones in the, in the temple. That's where they were to have their proper. So this tells us everything was illegal about this second trial. As mentioned also, the Sanhedrin Council was only empowered to act as judge and jury in illegal proceedings when uh, the charges against the defendant were brought to them from a party outside. They were not to be the ones to initiate the charges, but that's precisely what they're doing here. And they don't have any charges <laughs> yet. They're trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself with a charge that they can yet then use against him. So are you getting the picture how wrong all of this is? You know, you don't have to remember all the details, but just one thing that stands out is the whole thing is so completely illegal. And that's where we pick up the narrative. So let's start by reading John, uh, Matthew 26, starting at verse 57. Matthew 26, verse 57. And uh, notice the first, verse 56 is um, talking about when they were still in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says all the disciples forsook him and fled. And then right away in verse 57, it tells about taking Jesus to Caiaphas. What's missing between verses 56 and 57 here in Matthew? What's missing? Right, the whole trial before Annas. And so you need to put in, in between those two little uh, passages there, I put a little parenthesis thing, and then I wrote Annas' trial of John 18. See, if you just read Matthew, you wouldn't know that there were six trials because we have to use all four Gospels. So anyway, after they forsook him in Gethsemane, then they led Jesus to Annas, and then we pick up with verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now they had had time to assemble because Annas had stalled for time. Okay. Now skip verse 58 because that's about Peter and go down to verse 59. And by the way, 58 is having to do with Peter's first denial. All right. Look at verse 59. Now it says the uh, chief priests and elders and all the council sought false 
witness. That's just amazing. Sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow, that's a derogatory, really they're saying this. It's a very derogatory way to speak of Jesus. These witnesses say this. Said, and here's what one of them says, I, that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, unto Jesus, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. All right, now if you flip over to Mark, we'll get the full account here when we put these two together. Look at Mark 14, starting in verse 53. And again, you'll notice that uh, Mark, if you look between 52 and 53 of Mark 14, you'll see that he skipped also the trial of Jesus before Annas, Annas, because the last thing he talked about was when that young, you know, that was the streaker. (laughs) We assume maybe it was John Mark um, left the linen clothes and fled from them naked. And then the next thing he mentions is in verse 53, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. That's Caiaphas. And skip verse 54, because again, that's about Peter. So go down to 55. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many, many, notice that word many, many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? And he, Jesus, held his peace and answered nothing. All right. You want to go back to Matthew. I'll probably stay in Matthew more than Mark. But Matthew 26, 59 tells us that the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. That tells us right off the bat that this entire second trial proceeding was intentionally built on falsehood intentionally built on falsehood. They sought for false witness. Remember, as I mentioned a little earlier, back in John 11, following the Lord's raising from the dead of Lazarus, the council under Caiaphas had predetermined to get rid of Jesus, to kill him. But they needed false accusations against him in order to justify their death sentence verdict before the people. I mean, they had to tell the people why they were going to, why they put Jesus to death. The people would sooner or later find out that they had killed Jesus, and they needed to give the people a reason for why they had done so. So they needed to seek false accusations against him. You see, truth could not witness against the Lord Jesus. You get it? Truth couldn't witness against him. Truth would only uphold his sinlessness. Truth would only uphold his claims to being the Messiah. 
truth would only uphold his claims to also being the son of God, deity. And truth would only uphold all his teachings as being scriptural. Nothing wrong with his teachings. Remember how many times they tried to trip him up and they were never able to. So what did these evil men have to turn to? They couldn't go to truth. They had to turn to lies to accuse him. And isn't that amazing? When you think about false witnesses were sought by the spiritual leaders. These should have been the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And they're out there seeking for false witnesses against the very Son of God. It's just so incredible. The desire, you see, the desire of these men to protect their own positions and their own power and also their deep-seated envy of Jesus because he was so popular with the people when they were so unpop unpopular. That, that was so intense in them that they were willing to violate every scriptural and every rabbinical rule of justice. The council was not going to be deterred from their quest to kill the Christ by a lack of facts. We're not going to let a lack of facts get in the way. Evil doesn't care about facts. Have you ever noticed that? They don't care about the facts. It will use whatever lies it can find to justify its evil ways. And yet, even in all their illegal methods that they are trying to use here, they became very frustrated. Matthew tells us that although the chief priests and all the council sought for false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, they found what? They found none. Mark says that many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. What all that means is that although many false witnesses were found, and can you find people who are willing to speak lies just to gain some maybe money for their whatever? or to just um, rub shoulders with these big mucky mucks or whatever caused them to be willing to come and testify falsely against someone. You can always find people like that. But even though many, it says, were brought, none of them said anything that was convicting enough to be used as a death sentence against him. No one could come up with anything that could be used against him to, to, accuse, you know, to cause him to die. They might have made up little things, but... The, the council knew that those wouldn't stand up before the multitude, that they wouldn't believe them. If they said, well, I don't know, pick something, that Jesus was an adulterer, the, the masses wouldn't believe him. See, they had to get something that would convict, convince the multitudes. And, and also, not only did they have a problem in that nobody said anything that could convict him of the death sentence, but no two testimonies agreed. They didn't have any two that could be found that agreed. And this is very typical of those who are lying because lies are endless in their diversity that's why there's so many religions and cults you know false religions because lies can just there can be zillions of lies out there but truth is what singular truth is singular there was so this first trial in this first phase let me say this there's three phases in this second trial and the first phase of this second trial, in it, there was no credible or consi consistent witness to Jesus having done anything wrong. So the first phase, 
no credible or consistent witness found. And when you think about this, this is really nothing but another fantastic testimony to the sinless character and person of Jesus Christ, that even his most powerful enemies had no evidence against him, and that the only way they could even try to accuse him was to seek for liars to testify against him. But did you notice that they weren't seeking for any witnesses to speak out on behalf of Christ, were they? They were only seeking false witnesses. They weren't going out there looking for his disciples or Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Did they go two miles to round up Lazarus? Let's get him in here, hear what he has to say. Or the man born blind? Or all those people he healed? No, they're only looking for false witnesses. And that's another evidence that this court and this trial are going to be completely one-sided. Well, they're very frustrated. And then finally, finally, two witnesses show up with a, with a charge that appeared to be something usable. Okay, prior to them, no two witnesses agreed together, Mark 14, 59 says. And the law, I don't know why they worried about the law at this point, but the law did say that you had to have at least two witnesses to agree. That was one law I guess they felt like they needed to have in order to present their case to the people, all right? But no two witnesses agreed. But then these two men show up to accuse Jesus of having made a verbal attack against what? The temple, the temple. But there's still a problem because although they spake spoke of the same situation, they had conflicting reports. That's why I read both Matthew and Mark, so you could see this. The original passage that they were trying to quote Jesus came from John 2.19, and that was back some three and a half years earlier. Jesus had come into Jerusalem. This is early in his ministry, the first time he arrived in Jerusalem in his official public ministry, and he went straight to the temple, and what did he do? He cleansed it, and we'll talk more about it, but after he cleansed it, then he, he had spoken these words uh, that they're now trying to quote him about, but they both misquoted him. If you compare what these witnesses say in Matthew and Mark with what he actually said over in John 2.19, you'll see that they both misquoted the Lord, and when you misquote someone, guess what happens? That leads to an improper interpretation of what they really said. If you misquote somebody and you interpret based on that misquote, you're not going to be interpreting what they really said properly, are you? That's what happened here. Now, Mark tells us that one of these men said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple. Now, think about what Jesus really said. One witness says that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. Look at John 2.19. And within three, within three days, that's less than three days, within three days, I will build another temple made without hands. Now, the word he used for another refers to a different kind of temple. So this guy says, Jesus Jesus said, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and within three days, I'm going to build another temple made without hands. Now, Matthew says that the other witness reported that Jesus said, I am able 
to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Not within three days, but in three days. Now, this witness was saying that Jesus said he was able to destroy the temple. The other witness said that Jesus said, I will destroy it. This one says, I'm able. I have the ability to destroy the temple and build it, the same temple, back in three days. The other witness said he would destroy it and he would build another temple and it would be made without hands and it would be within three days. I know that's all confusing, but you get the picture, right? They're both misquoting what Jesus really said and they're disagreeing with each other. I mean, th their, their words did not agree, but their point did. Their point did. They were both implying, you see, that Jesus had threatened the temple. But what exactly did Jesus say? He, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will what? Raise it up. He never, ever, ever said that he would destroy the temple. You know what the implied subject is? When he said, destroy this temple, what's the implied subject? You. You will be the ones to destroy this temple. You destroy this temple, and I'll, I'll raise it up in three days. He was predicting his death at their hands. Because really, John tells us there in John chapter 2 that what temple is he speaking of? The temple of his body, because at that time, his body was the temple of God. He wasn't speaking about the physical temple. And here's what had actually just happened. I told you that that was the day that he went into the temple and for the first time cleansed it. And he, um, he, he, he said, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Because Annas had set up, you know, his bazaar with all those corrupt money changers and animal sellers. It, does this sound like someone who is not, doesn't honor the temple and would destroy it? No, Annas and his crowd were destroying the temple, the real temple building, by making it a den of thieves, house of merchandise. Jesus was the one who was trying to honor the temple. And then the Jews, of course, they were all upset that he had come in there and cleansed it. And the Jews said, show us a sign that you have the authority to do what you just did. And so he gives them his first sign, the first sign. And what is it? destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. Now that is really, really interesting because this is actually a prediction, you see, of what they were doing at this very Passover. And by the way, that occasion had happened at another Passover, the first Passover of his earthly ministry. And now we're at the last Passover of his earthly ministry and they're being reminded of that very prediction that they would destroy his temple, his body. They were right then looking for an excuse to destroy him. Now, he didn't mention anything about a temple made with hands, did he, in his original quote? No. He didn't make a any uh, reference to a temple made without hands, as one of the witnesses had said. Although that was an interesting addition, <laughs> because the Jerusalem temple was made with hands, wasn't it? And his body temple was made without hands. Nor, if you look at what he really said, nor did Jesus say that he would rebuild the destroyed temple. 
Did he ever say that? They both said that he would build it. Whichever one they were talking about, they said he would build it back. Either within three days or in three days, he would build it, rebuild it. But did he ever use the word rebuild? What did, had he said? He said, I will raise it up. He, and he would raise the same temple, not a different one. That was a reference to his bodily resurrection from the grave. And he would do so in three days. He's speaking of his resurrection in three days. Now think about this. The timeliness of this could not have been better. Those two witnesses were, were uh, calling attention to the very first sign that Jesus had ever given. And most of them might have forgotten about it, but they're reminding them. When Jesus gave his first sign, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. And right now, the whole council is bent on destroying him. And they, uh, and they will. They'll succeed in destroying him. But three days later, what is he going to do? Raise it up. Raise it up. And this earliest of signs, they themselves had asked for. They're the ones who said, show us a sign that you have the authority to do what you're doing. They had asked for this sign, is now being brought to their remembrance and their attention, not by him, but by his enemies, false witnesses who they had sought for. And they're coming forth and reminding him, them, of that first sign. When you think all that through, it's just incredible. Don't you see, again, the sovereignty of God? Isn't this so providential? Again, we see how God makes even the wrath of men to praise him, doesn't he? Well, the bottom line of all of this was that the, frust the council was so frustrated, um, but they recognized that they were, uh, they did not recognize, they were so frustrated, but they did not recognize that they were making uh, Jesus' first sign prediction come to pass. <clears throat> but they were frustrated and perturbed because they could not use the testimony of even these two witnesses who came the closest of anybody to agreeing, but they couldn't even use their testimony against him because their statements didn't agree. Uh, Deuteronomy 17.6 says that uh, there must be exact agreement between two witnesses. And as I said, at this point, they're not really concerned about obeying the law as much as they're concerned about presenting a believable reason for Jesus' death to the masses so that the masses wouldn't turn on them, you know, after they found out they put Jesus to death without two witnesses and without a, a crime, the masses would have turned on them. And by the way, do you notice that none of the witnesses were um, warned of the penalty for perjury? their evidence as required by law. You know, you're always supposed to, in a court, you're supposed to warn those that if they commit perjury, they're going to be punished. But then that would be kind of ironic, wouldn't it? To, be, to warn the witnesses of perjury when they had actually sought for false witnesses. So they couldn't very well do that, could they? Well, their continuing failure to find a charge against Jesus had produced a very tense situation. You can just imagine, you could, you know, cut the atmosphere with a knife. It's so tense, and they're so frustrated. They've come up with nothing. What are they going to do? And so Caiaphas, you know, comes to the rescue again. And he stands up in the midst of them. It tells us Mark 14, 60. And apparently that's where Jesus stood facing the semicircle of the Sanhedrin members. They were, they were always assembled in a, 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 a semicircle. 
and Jesus would have been in the midst of them, facing them. Caiaphas stood, and he went out to Jesus, and he confronted him. First of all, he confronted him about his silence. You know, why are you silent in all of this? And secondly, he confronts him about his identity. He says, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? What he's trying to do here, he's at a loss for what to do, so what he's trying to do is to goad Jesus into saying something that could be used against him. He's trying to arouse an angry response out of Jesus against these witnesses. You know, all these witnesses have come forth, Jesus. Don't you have anything to say for yourself? He's trying to to get Jesus to set the record straight. Maybe by saying, you know, they're all lying. Here's what I actually said. And then they could take his words and they could twist them um, into a declaration of his open hostility toward their sacred institution and use it as an accusation against him before all the people. The threatened destruction of their sacred place of worship would surely arouse the anger of the multitude. So you see what he's trying to do? He's trying to get him to say, well, tell us again that you're going to destroy the temple, and then we're going to use that against you. However, the false witnesses had failed totally. That's why they're all so frustrated, is because all their false witnesses had failed to establish a case against Jesus. There was nothing at all presented by them that necessitated his defense. You see, there had only been conflicting lies presented. An accused person only needs to defend himself against a stated charge. And so far there hadn't been any. So he didn't need to defend himself at all here. And the Lord was not about to dignify any of the false witnesses by responding to their lies about him and saying something. So he wasn't going to give them the dignity of a response. No charge has yet been laid against him. So why should he open his mouth and defend himself? To do so would only give them dignity. So it says he held his peace and answered nothing. To have spoke, and besides, this is fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Didn't it say that, you know, as the lamb led to the slaughter, he wouldn't open his mouth? But to have spoken here in his defense would give the illegal proceeding the appearance of legitimacy, and the Lord was not going to stoop to do that. So he just remained silent silent here. And sometimes silence is great wisdom. Have you found that to be true? <laughs> yes. The Lord's silence was wisdom. It is not wise to argue with those who blatantly pervert the truth, because often they will use their lies to get their opponent uh, upset or angry and so that then their opponent will say something inappropriate that can be thrown right back at their face so if in a situation like that a lot of times it's just better to be silent and the Lord's silence as I said was also a fulfillment of prophecy Isaiah 53 7 says that he would be oppressed and he would be afflicted yet he would not open his mouth Even the powerful high priest could not twist Jesus' silence into an inference of, you know, into an uh, admission of guilt. So if he was silent, the high priest couldn't take his words and twist them to say, oh, you're guilty, could he? If he's silent, he doesn't have any words to twist. So his silence here was really wise. 
Actually, it was an embarrassingly loud declaration. He didn't say a word, but the silence was a loud declaration to the council of his disdain for everything they were doing, all their illegal and lying efforts. You know, I got to thinking how how much more brightly the Lord himself stands out in this situation against all this darkness. I mean, you've got... You've got a, uh, he's standing there in the midst of a world of lies because you've got all these false witnesses, many of them. I don't know how many, many is, but many, many false witnesses. You've got the lying hypocrisy of Annas. And, well, Annas isn't here, but he was. And Caiaphas and the, all the council members. And who's out in the courtyard even? Also lying about his true relationship with him. Peter's out there lying too. So everybody's lying around Jesus, right? But he stands there firm as the truth. He is the truth. So desperate to do something quickly before sunrise, when all the Passover multitudes would begin to stir and the risk of their illegal venture being discovered would increase, Caiaphas rose to the situation by placing Jesus under a sacred oath. Okay? He needed to get Jesus to claim deity so that he could charge him with blasphemy and then condemn him to die. And he needed to do it quickly, so he puts him under an oath. So let's look at Matthew 26, starting at 63, the latter part of 63. After it says, Jesus held his peace, it says, And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. You said it, buddy. <laughs> thou hast said. And then he adds this. He says, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Now let's read what Mark says, okay? Mark 14, 61. Are you there? Right after, again, it says he held his peace and answered nothing. Then it says, again, Mark 14, 61, again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, that's what it says in Mark's account. What did Jesus answer? I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him. Do you notice that word all? I circled it. And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Okay. The Greek verb tense of Caiaphas asking tells us that he kept on asking the Lord repeatedly if he was the Christ, the Son of God, and uh, Mark says, the son of the blessed. By the way, the title, the blessed one, are you the son of the blessed one? Is That's the only time you find that title for God in the New Testament. It came from the mouth of Caiaphas, and it's just a Jewish substitute for God's 
holy name Yahweh or Jehovah. You know, the Jews would not pronounce God's holy name Yahweh, so instead they would call him the Blessed One. So uh, it, it was very, of course, it was very well known to this cunning high priest Caiaphas that Jesus had claimed on more than one occasion to not only be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, but he had also claimed that he stood in the unique relationship as God's son, the son of the blessed one, the son of Yahweh, a claim that they all understood was a claim to deity. To be the father's son means you're of the same nature as the, as the father. Well, gathering those two claims together in one, what does he do? He puts Jesus under an oath. This meant that if Jesus refused to answer here, like he had been, just remaining silent, if he refused to answer, he would be charged with contempt of the blessed name of God. Now, of course, Caiaphas was trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself with his answer. Because if he spoke the truth, what would they do? What did they do? Because he did speak the truth. What would he do? What would they do if he spoke the truth? They would immediately accuse him of blasphemy and then condemn him to death. On the other hand, if he didn't answer, they would say, well, you're condemned because you're showing contempt for the blessed name of God. And what's the only other choice? Remain silent, say yes, or say, what's the other choice? Say no, right? He could say, no, I'm not the Christ, the son of the blessed. But if he said no, he'd be a liar, wouldn't he? He'd just be joining the rest of them. He'd be a liar. And if he was a liar, he could not be our savior from sin, could he? And guess what? Because he is God, he is the son of the blessed, there's one thing he cannot do. And he cannot lie. So he couldn't lie. So there was only one thing he could do. And only th one thing he would do, which was speak the truth. And so to this question, with great majestic calm and authority and absolutely no hesitation whatsoever, <laughs> we have his answer that has rung through the corridors of time ever since he spoke it. And when you put the two accounts of Matthew and Mark together, here's what he answered. He said, Thou hast said, I am. Don't you love that? Thou hast said, I am. Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? You got it. I am. And it was under oath that Jesus declared his true identity here. And you know what? That adds even further weight to his answer, to his testimony. As clear as daylight. You know, people say Jesus never admitted to be God. Baloney! As clear as daylight, the Lord affirmed his deity here. There's no mysterious symbolism in his words. He's not speaking in parables so that only those with ears to hear would hear. They got it. They understood what he was saying. And then, in addition to directly answering the high priest's question, he goes on and says something else. What else does he say? Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Wow. Wow. Now some people might say, I wonder why he added that. We'll talk about that. Very important. So, 
This is the third phase of this second Jewish trial, okay? The first phase consisted of false and inconsistent witnesses. The second phase consisted of mistaken and inconsistent witnesses. The third phase was the Lord's own personal testimony to which he added references to Old Testament scriptures. And so what was it? It was true and scripturally consistent witness, the third phase, true and scripturally consistent witness. Where is he quoting from? Well, two places in the Old Testament. One is Psalm 110, verse 1. And in that psalm, it speaks, David wrote it, and it speaks of the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, whose Lord? David's Lord. The Lord, and you know what that Lord is? All capital, L-O-R-D. It's saying, Yahweh said unto my Lord, and that Lord is Adonai. We've talked about this before because Jesus quoted this same verse on Tuesday of the Passion Week to the religious rulers. Remember when they were questioning him? One sect after another was trying to trip him up with a politically loaded or a theologically loaded question, and every time he silenced their mouths? Remember that? And then at the end he said, now I've got a question for you. Who was Yahweh talking to in Psalm 110.1? And they didn't say a word because they hated that psalm. They couldn't figure it out because it says, Yahweh said to Adonai. Hmm. How can that be? How can that be? God speaking to himself? Because Adonai is clearly a term only for God. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the Lord had used this prophecy before. David wrote this. And it says, Yahweh said to David's Adonai, sit at my right hand. What Jesus is doing here is he's trying to show the Jews. Now get this. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. Jesus is trying to show the Jews for the second time this week. And this verse is going to come up again in the next trial. Okay? This is an important verse. He's trying to get the Jews to see that the Messiah was not to just be a man. You know, they thought the Messiah would be a prophet like unto Moses. Just a man, a great man, but just a man. And he's trying to show them, no, the promised Messiah is going to be much more than just a man. He's going to be God himself in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, Adonai. So he's saying, yes, Caiaphas, I am the Christ, which means that I am also deity. I am Adonai. I am the one Jehovah talked to in that psalm. So that's one uh, Old Testament prof- uh, passage he quoted from, Psalm 110.1. The other one is Daniel 7.13, which refers to the Son of Man, the Messiah. What was Jesus' favorite term for himself? The Son of Man. And they all acknowledged and knew that that was a term for the Messiah because it goes back to Daniel, okay? Daniel 7.13 refers to the Son of Man, the Messiah, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, the entire council, all those members there, 
would know the passages from which Jesus was quoting because they knew their Old Testament scriptures. It's one thing you can credit them for. They did know their Old Testaments. They would know that Daniel had been given a prophetic vision of Israel's future in light of the Gentile nations, which are presented in Daniel 7 as all kinds of beasts. And they knew that things didn't look good for Israel because she would be oppressed under one Gentile nation after another. And the great hope of Israel is finally presented in Daniel 7, 9, when the Ancient of Days, who is that? God. When the Ancient of Days takes his throne as thousands upon tens of thousands attend to him, and the heavenly court is in session, and the books are opened. And this is in Daniel 7:13. The books are open, and it says, Behold, this is Daniel. Okay, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and to him who, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. What kind of a kingdom was given to the Son of Man? A universal kingdom, right? All peoples, all nations, all tongues. So to the Son of Man was given a universal kingdom. What else is revealed in this passage about the kingdom that was given to the Son of Man? Well, it goes on to say, It shall not pass away nor be destroyed. So not only is it a universal kingdom, it's an everlasting kingdom, and it's an indestructible kingdom. Would God give a mere man an eternal, everlasting, indestructible, universal kingdom? Would he? No. No. You only give an everlasting kingdom to an everlasting king. So, <coughs> again... <coughs> Why is he referring to these two Old Testament passages? <coughs> what do they have to do with what's going on here in this proceeding? Well, these are passages <coughs> that identify the fact that not only is he the Christ, but he also is the Son of the Blessed. What he's doing here is boldly claiming to be the Adonai of Psalm 110, verse 1 and the Son of Man heir of God's eternal, indestructible, everlasting kingdom of Daniel 7, both of whom are Messiah and God. He's trying to show them from their own scriptures that the Messiah was also divine, deity, okay? Now, you see, here's the issue. The Jews were upset, not so much with Jesus because of his claims to being the Messiah. They had had many who had come and claimed to be the Messiah. And they would have many more who would come and claim to be the Messiah up till even our day. There are people in the world today who claim to be the Messiah. Do they get the Jewish people all bent out of shape? No, they don't. None of the professing messiahs have ever been hated with such passion by the Jews as they hated Jesus of Nazareth. I think, personally, <clears throat> that they even checked out his credentials, which they could easily have done back in those days because all the temple records were, you know, before they were destroyed. I am sure as soon as he claimed to be messiah, 
and uh, he cleansed that temple the first time. They marched to the temple records and found out, sure enough, uh uh-oh, he does come from the right lineage, from both his mother and his stepfather. And uh uh-oh, he uh, does have the right birthplace, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And he did have a forerunner. Hmm. And he does perform miracles. And he does speak in Proverbs. And he is sinless, because that's what's causing such a problem, right? They can't find anything to accuse him of. And I think that they found that there was nothing they could do to disprove his right to claim, you know, his claim to Messiahship. What would they accuse him of? Well, you don't go all the way back to David? or you, What could they accuse him of when he claimed to be Messiah? Anybody come up with anything? No, because there isn't anything. He did meet all of the credentials to be the Messiah. So they couldn't kill him for claiming messiahship. And that isn't what angered them. What angered them, ladies? When he also claimed to be God, to be have divine status. When he called God his father. And when he said, I and the father are one. And when he said, before Abraham was... I am. And when he called himself the resurrection and the life, and when he called himself the light of the world, and on and on and on. That's what angered them. He went way, way beyond any other proclaimed Messiah. He went way beyond their comprehension of the Messiah. He seemed to be threatening their monotheism. Right? Only one God? He was threatening that. They thought he was blaspheming God. And that provided them with reason to kill him. But even in that, you know, they're acting like they really care about God so much. That they're offended that one would come along and blaspheme God. You know, and Caiaphas carries on and he he rips his, he rents his robe and he says, oh, he's blaspheming, now we can accuse him of They don't really care about God. Haven't we seen that over and over again? If they really loved God and knew God, they would recognize him in his son. What do they really care about? They care about an accusation to get rid of Jesus. So, okay, we've got one. He's blaspheming. We can kill him. Um, All they really care care about is protecting their positions and their wealth. And uh, they're envious of him because of his popularity. That's why they want to destroy him. And um, anyway, so they, they, they think they can finally come up with this accusation of blasphemy. Um, but really, there's absolutely, he's showing them there's absolutely nothing blasphemous about the Messiah also being the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God. So was Jesus intimidated as he stood in the midst of this hostile court of powerful men? Was he at all intrepidated by them? Absolutely not. Not one bit. Not only did he not meekly admit who he was, I mean, very clear, you have said, I am, but, uh, and no, when he said that, he knew it would result in his own death. But then he admitted outright and, and, uh, and went on to tell them that he was, I am, and he would return one day. He would come from his heavenly throne in the clouds, both to reign and to judge. He was not only verifying the fact of his deity, he was also there predicting his resurrection. How could he return in the clouds unless he resurrected? They were going to destroy his temple, but he was going to return, so that's a prediction of his resurrection, his ascension, and his return in glory. He was telling those who put themselves in the place of being his judges 
that at his return in glory, the tables were going to be turned. They will be the ones standing in judgment of him. Now, the Jewish religious leaders had no problem whatsoever in understanding very clearly that right here he was claiming to be deity. Do you get that? They had no problem understanding that like so many people today do. He claimed to be deity, and that's why Caiaphas, who actually was delighted here at the success of his tactic to get Jesus to incriminate himself, acted so piously grieved. Now, what had they just done? They, had, they got Jesus to incriminate himself. Should that have held up in the court of law? No, because no matter how convincing a person's own testimony to incriminate himself was, they couldn't use it. But they're going to use it anyway. And, and then what does Caiaphas do? He tears his clothes. Do you know that if you read Leviticus 21.10, it is strictly forbidden for the high priest to ever rent his clothes? Isn't that amazing? Another illegal thing he's doing here. And then, as he does that, he pronounces his judgment. He has spoken blasphemy. I mean, they didn't do any search to see if that could possibly be true, did they? They didn't go look up those passages in the Old Testament and say, yeah, this really is, does really show the Messiah must be God. They didn't care about that, did they? They just right away say he's committed blasphemy, so we have no further need of witnesses. Behold, now you've heard his witness. And then with this theatrical display of horror and indignation, he then asks the Sanhedrin, what think ye and what do they answer? He is guilty of death. Mark 14, 64, I told you to circle the word, word all. It says they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So do you know what Caiaphas should therefore have done at this point? You got it. He should have released him because it was a unanimous vote. And according to their own laws, rabbinical laws, they were to immediately release a defendant if it was a unanimous vote because that indicated a lack of the necessary element of mercy. Now, did they do that? Did they immediately release him? Of course not. In fact, their next actions, which we'll have to wait for next week to look at, totally proved the lack of the necess necessary element of mercy. They slap him around and they mock him and they just do incredible things. The Jewish spiritual leaders of the nation. Mm, so sad. But we'll save that for next time. And I hope that you learned something today. Do all of your homework questions for this lesson except number nine. Okay, we'll save that for next time. Let's pray. Father, those of us who know you want to confess again. I hope we all do. We want to confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. He is Adonai. He is alive right now, too. He's seated at your right hand, and he has observed everything that we have shared and thought and done and said here this morning. He has met with us. We know this because we are gathered in his name. And, Father, we want to tell you that with all of our hearts, we do believe this truth, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior from our sins. He is everything he claimed to be. And so, Father, I would ask that if there should be one among us who yet doubts that statement, we, we together ask that you would exercise the Spirit's work in her 
that convincing, convicting work that he alone can do to open a person's heart, the work that actually overthrows the work of the devil who tries to blind eyes to the gospel truth and, and to dissuade people from giving their hearts and giving their lives to the Lord Jesus. We know that he came to seek and to save that which is lost, so seek out anyone here among us who may be self-deceived, thinking she's saved when she truly isn't. We ask that you would bring her into a vital, personal relationship with yourself through your son so that your name can be glorified eternally by yet one more voice. Now watch over all of us. May we be salt and light for you this coming week. Bring us together again safely next week, Lord, for we pray and ask in your blessed name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.